light bulb moment. This is my calling. This is what I want to help people to do. I thought that if I failed at any point, that would mean from then on I was I was a loser. I actually just had this feeling of, of just wanting to surrender and give in. Hi, and on today's uh, episode of The Engaging Marketeer, I am interviewing Sue Parker. Uh, Sue uh, also runs a podcast, The Lifestyle Entrepreneur, and Sue has an incredible story where she went from corporate burnout through to lifestyle entrepreneur and helping other people with their businesses and getting through all of the tech so that they can set up their passive income businesses. Uh, it's a great story and, and she's brutally honest with everything. So I'm really looking forward to this one. I've been looking over your your, your details and you, you worked corporate, very, very corporate world, I believe. Mm. And it's something that you, you escaped from to become the lifestyle entrepreneur. Uh, what, what sort of corporate world was that and how did you get into it? Yeah, so um, I was a what, what's described as a woman in tech in mm. the corporate world, in the corporate sector. Um, so how do I get into it? Really good question. I guess I guess it, I got I fell into it because I was good at IT at school. I was good at business studies and I was taught to get a good job. And I remember mm. all the way through school and college, it was, do you know what? There's going to be there's going to be good jobs in computing. You really want to stick with your computer, Sue, and it just it just became that. Oh, that's what I do. Then I get a good job in tech. And um, I remember I was a tech teacher at one point. I taught IT in college and school, and I I did all that kind of stuff. And then I got fed up of working in a school, becoming very institutionalized, and I went on to be a web developer. I then decided I didn't want to do coding, so I found that I really loved working with clients, and I was a business analyst and then a project manager. And then I was like, right, okay, well, the next thing you do is you get a title, Sue, you get a leadership title, Mm -hmm. which for a woman in a white male corporate is actually really hard. (laughs) And you don't realize, I didn't realize there was all this bias, but also what I didn't do is I didn't want to label it as as bias or say that I was treated any different because I actually thought it would hinder my chances even more. So I, I spent many years working twice as hard as some people, keeping my head down, doing twice as much work, trying to just basically think I can work my way out of this. I can put in extra time, put in evenings, put in the extra work, take up the slack when I know somebody else is not doing their fair share Mm. to make the project successful. On the proviso that as a project manager, if I got a project over the line, somebody would recognize that and give me a promotion. It doesn't work like that (laughs) because, you know, very quickly I realized, um, okay, you have to be liked by people. You have to have relationships with your manager and their manager and other people around the business that are going to be advocates for you. And, yeah, and then I and then I just became really despondent to it. In answer to your question, I, I just felt like the odd one out. I felt like this didn't work for me. I started to even coach other women on how to get leadership roles once I finally got mine. So I did I did eventually get a leadership role. I was a head of data. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, pat on the back from our uncles and um, family members. You're doing really well, Sue. You've got a really good job, really stable, secure. And in the me- all the while, I just felt like I'd sold out in a way. I'd... I'd kind of changed who I was. I call it round peg, square hole, trying to make it fit. And I was now sat around a table full of men and having to sort of sell my ideas but being treated differently. And I don't even think they realize they treat you differently. Mm. That's where that unconscious bias came in. So I started to do lots of research. I started to attend loads of women in tech events, discovered that lots of other women were experiencing the same problems. And then I wanted to help other women get on the career ladder and become leaders like me because I thought, well, maybe the equality and diversity is how we break this. We break this by having more of a diverse board and more of a diverse leadership team. So I started to coach those women to get my position. But all the while, I was still trying to master my own position. And I remember just feeling frustrated, call after call with these women and delivering women in tech talks at the conference and things and people being really fired up and then going out there and then coming back to me with these stories where they proposed a great idea, but it got shot down. And then the next day somebody else proposed it and it was it was taken up. And that sort of made me really despondent. Um, I did suffer burnout as well in my career, which is not something I would ever want to go through again or, or ask anybody to. So 
when I first became a leader, I had so many things spinning. Mm. I would, I was trying to impress basically. I didn't want that six month probation to be, Hey Sue, do you know what? You're not actually cut out for this. Like the rest of us, I'd work really hard for it. And I basically decided again, go all in Sue, do everything. And I got all these plates spinning and it might be an improvement plan. It was, let's do this with the data warehouse. Let's do this. Let's do this. Let's talk, let's expand the team. Let's expand the projects we do. And all of that meant that I just kept taking things on but I hadn't even found my feet as being a leader yet. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a great book about the first 90 days and it's it's just helping you to find your feet, listen and learn versus going in, all guns blazing, trying to make all these changes and do everything and change the world, which is what I did. Um, on reflection, years later, I'm able to look back at that time and think part of that came from me. It was my fault because I had this ridiculous expectation and I put this on me. And part of it was the job but you can mold that you can you can change that but i, I just i just remember it being just the lowest time yeah. of of my career and, and it lasted years the sort of the repercussions on my body um i don't know if, if you've ever experienced burnout but it manifests itself in quite a physical way you don't realize that it's it feels like that i remember it felt like a heart attack and since then i've heard other people say this it, you have heart palpitations you have difficulty breathing you have insomnia your head is just swirling and whirling you know when you reach that breaking point and you know something just made me snap that night i reached breaking point it you can't you can't articulate what's happening it because it's so physical, but you're like, but this this is just stress causing a physical thing. It, it's really difficult to explain. It almost feels like you're being, you're being, I don't know, a victim, pathetic. You're making it up. You're 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 just being weak, and so you fight it. You fight it a lot of the time. And well, I was talking to one of my friends yesterday who who does yoga philosophy, and she was saying, quite often we don't listen to our bodies. In these moments you know there were so many times when she had a corporate career and she would go into work and her she would be ill a lot and she was ignoring the signs that her body was giving her of fatigue of exhaustion of stress and i definitely did that i just i, I thought i could power through anything and how long did this this feeling last that you were having i was probably off work for about six months in total um the the thing is the build-up of that that to that night when that's how it felt you know it was it, it was little things like constant headaches stress irritability um just feeling lethargic unable to sleep insomnia having notes by my bed having this never-ending to-do list that just kept growing and feeling more and more overwhelming and it must have been three months build up before that point happened but after that i actually just had this feeling of of just wanting to surrender and give in I cried a lot. I couldn't face anybody. I couldn't talk to anybody. I couldn't go out on the with the dog. I couldn't even walk the dog. And it taught me a very valuable lesson about putting work and this career ahead of my health and wellness, my family, my relationships, because it broke a lot of it down. It, Like I say, it took me years before I was back feeling like a human and, and feeling like I could take on new things and do things. But for a good while, it probably knocked my confidence. Mm. Um, and then a number of years after that, I had my son. And when you have kids, you you have this sort of, you, you'll know that you're this, you have this bond to them. And all of a sudden, you're, you refactor your values, what matters in life. And I'd always been prioritizing work. I was a workaholic. I, had, I wanted the career. I wanted the title. I wanted good money. I wanted everybody to say I was doing well. I wanted to have that pat on the back, have that perfect linear career. I mean, it wasn't. It was very squiggly. You know, I side hopped a lot. But when I had my son, I wanted to sort of phase that out a little bit for a few years, go part time um, and, and juggle and have a different work-life balance which meant that I could spend more time with him I I didn't want to be parted from him you know when Mm. you have your first baby you just don't want to be taken away from them and and leave them with a stranger or something in nursery and I I remember the first day he had at nursery he screamed so much I remember walking away from that window tears in my eyes going down to the station 
thinking, what have I done? But when I when I went through that transition, when I had my son, I really wanted to go part time. And what I learned very quickly when I was talking to my employer and then I was talking to uh, recruitment agencies is that as a professional, it's really difficult to find any part time flexible work. Or certainly it was seven years ago and five years ago when I had my daughter. People just aren't interested. The resounding answer kept coming back. It doesn't work for us, Sue. And I just had lots of advice that just said, hey, Sue, why don't you leave that and go and get some shop work because you'll be able to do flexible shop work. And I remember feeling like, do you know what? I've worked for years. I have this tech knowledge. I have this understanding of systems. I've worked for years to be a project manager to build up to this. And you're basically saying, leave part of your identity on the sidelines because you can't do, you can't have it all. You can't be this and this. Mm-hmm. You, if you want to be a mum, you just be a mum now. And I wasn't accepting of it. I wasn't happy with that. So fast forward quite a while. I started some online business. I tried to figure out how you build a sales funnel, how you promote yourself online, content marketing, how you deliver digital courses, how you prep one, how you do an email sign-up list. And that's, that's long and short why I did mm. what I did because um, I could see other people online doing this. And I was like, well, well how are they doing this? Wow. There's there, there's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, I, I want to go back to the, the, the burnout thing. So I, I, I personally don't know if I've ever experienced anything like that. I'm, I'm guessing I haven't. Um, but when you had that, that feeling, how quickly did you identify what it was and what was going through your mind when it happened? Because it, it could have been anything, couldn't it? Yeah. I think you know. In that week, that last week before I did I did hit that, that sort of brick wall and couldn't take it anymore, I knew what was going on, but I, di- mm. I didn't want to admit defeat. I didn't want to go to my boss and say, hey, actually, I'm really struggling with this job, or I need you to take some stuff off me, or I need to say to you, I can't do it all now. And you know what the crazy thing is? If I'd have gone to them, I probably could have said, you know what, I'm not going to do these things right now because I've got enough on my plate. I'm just going to focus on these. And they probably would have gone, that's fine, Sue. But I didn't because mm. I felt like a failure. And I think you 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 do know where your stresses come from. You do know where your pressures come from. You you recognize when you're doing too much. And and like I say, I was a workaholic. So it was it was something that I'd probably bounced back and forth from a few times knowing I was doing too much, but didn't want to admit it to everybody because mm. that would mean I didn't have a good job. I didn't, I wasn't a good leader. I wasn't succeeding mm. and having that perfect career. So that just, that just kept me stuck, not admitting it, not asking for help for much longer but than I needed to. Was it not wanting to admit it to everybody or not wanting to admit it to yourself? Quite possibly. I think, I think there's probably a huge part of mm. my relationship with failure. And I, and I don't think I'm the only person, I'm sure many of your listeners have a problem with failure as well, because if you think about it, and I, I look at this from my children's point of view as well, in school, you're right or wrong. You do a class competition, it's all about winning. Mm. It's all about the scores on the board. At, and at no point do we celebrate a failure or do we celebrate the fact that we tried something, it was hard and, you know, it, it's seen as weak, I think, in our society. And that's a problem. Because then we get to our stage where you're an entrepreneur and you have to fail many times and you have to be okay with getting up and moving on to the next thing, trying something else. But I believe we're conditioned and as a, as a culture, we don't like failure. Mm. Failure failure is, is, is a bad thing. It, it's not helped, I think, by certain aspects of the media as well, which mm. which pick on failure and, and highlight it. I mean, in particular, I'm... I'm I'm thinking of Piers Morgan, for example, mm-hmm. um, when uh, what's what's the tennis player's name? I can't remember her name. The the British girl that won the U.S. Open. I'm not sure who you're thinking of, Darren. Uh, she won it about two years ago. Uh, She's like 19. It's, it's, oh it's, yes, it's yes, in, I know who you mean. It's infuriating. Um, oh God, it's gone. It's top tip of my tongue. I can't remember her name. This is really embarrassing because I'm into sport as well. Um, but she pulled out of. I think it was Wimbledon just before that. And then Piers Morgan had this big attack on her about how she pulled out because of her, her mental health. 
she she couldn't cope with the the, the stress of what stress. The, the media pressure being on her in the semi-final and he just absolutely laid into her in the media laid into her on twitter laid into her in his, his column in the in the daily hile and basically called her a, a weak failure for for pulling out and then she went on to win the the US Open it it's people like like him and in the media that pick up on the fact that oh if you're if you don't succeed in something then you are a failure um, and, and I just think that puts a little bit too much pressure on people thinking that you always have to be this this successful person and, and you're going to win everything. I don't know what you what you thought about that. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd certainly had this thing. I had to be perfect. I had good grades. I had to be perfect. I was, you know, getting the getting the good job. Hmm. Um, definitely. Do you know what you I, I just want to pick up on that that you said there to be a failure. So it's not hmm. this is the thing we we take it on as our identity as opposed to it's just another time in history it's just another activity that we do that we win some we lose some it that's okay and that's the problem is taking it on as your identity means that's how you then project forward for mm. i thought that if i failed at any point that would mean from then on i was i was a loser mm. i was a failure i was no good i couldn't do anything and i carry you carry that baggage with you for a long time that label but it's not it's just as part of the journey, you win some, you lose some. What I needed to do was admit that I got too much on my plate. I needed help. And I could have avoided all of that, that that pressure. But instead, like you say, we view failure as something to be avoided, as a bad thing, as as, a, as I'm going to become this person. Mm. It's going to become me. And, and, you know, in, 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 I can say in many ways, in, in every way, you, you're right there, aren't you? Because if... People that don't try don't fail. So if you stay in a job that you don't particularly like because it's comfortable, because you know you're going to get paid at the end of the week or the end of the month or the end of the day, you know you're going to be able to do the job, you don't particularly like it, but it's fine. If you don't try to do something else, then you cannot possibly fail. Therefore, you're avoiding that failure. I'm a success because I, I get paid every week. And it, it, it's that kind of pressure that is put on people that stops them trying to do the things that they perhaps could and should be doing. It, it keeps people in their place. And it, it reminds me of what you were saying right at the beginning about when you were in school and you were good at IT, you were good at tech, so they were teaching you to get a job. And that seems to be what school and college and and even universities to a well to a large or almost in the entirety are there to get people into a job to get people into a career if you're good at something this is the job you can have at the end of it there doesn't seem to be anybody helping with entrepreneurship no. helping with business we don't learn how we can raise finance and, and and start a business we don't learn how we can manage and motivate teams Absolutely. it's all about put people in a job, do your nine to five, get your money, grow old, die, never try anything, you'll never be a failure. Yeah, Keep yeah. it safe. And it's, yeah, it, it's quite systematic. I mean, it, it's sad because we're in, we're in an entrepreneurial age now. Mm. And actually, since the, since the pandemic, there's been an increase in um, the gig economy and freelancing and all that kind of stuff. We know that there's going to be less and less requirement for people to work within companies because they want to keep lean. They want skeleton staff and outsourcing is a lot more popular, outsourcing a project, all of those sorts of things. So it's a shame that we're not teaching the entrepreneurial skills because they're actually necessary. But we also have this systematic problem culturally in that Every system is set up to require you to have payslips. You will remember this from when you transitioned from having, you know, a, a, a paid job to having a company of your own. All of a sudden, you can't apply for mortgages, loans, you know, credit cards, all of these sorts of things, minor, normal things in everyday existence in this country become increasingly difficult when you're self-employed or starting a business, you're an entrepreneur. Mm. It's almost like you have to wait until you're successful before you can do all the normal things that everybody else. And that's just because systematically the country is geared up for people like you say leaving university getting a job continuing on that cycle to pay for the people that are in retirement so that one day they'll be in retirement and we'll all do the same thing cyclically mm. but the world is changing the covid has changed that the global pandemic has changed that and and also we've got this this great resignation so the fact that during covid a lot of people said no to that life 
I don't want to trade the next 45 years of my life or however long it's going to be till I retire all my time so that I have no work balance. I earn some salary with you know minor incremental increases to one day potentially retire, depending on how much money I've got as to what I can do. A lot of people are saying, no, I need the work-life balance now. There's that mindfulness now around our health and wellness, like what I experienced. If I'd have been taking care of my health and wellness, I wouldn't have had that. Hmm. If I'd have been you know, taking recharge time, mini retirements, breaks, balancing my work with life, I wouldn't have had that. So there's a lot we've learned over the last few years and a lot that's out there in the media that's very good and positive, perhaps not in the mainstream media, but but all the systems in our country, I feel, need to advance to accommodate the entrepreneurial way, perhaps in the way that the US has started to do. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I had that problem myself just recently, but I wanted to say Emma Raducanu. That's the name I couldn't remember. Emma Raducanu, the tennis player that won, won US Open. Anyway, um, no, yes, we, we've got a problem with one of our, well, our home at the moment. So we have to move into serviced accommodation and then into rental accommodation while it gets sorted. It's going to take months. But the, even the application for renting was catered for people who are employed and and don't own a home so they wanted a guarantor it's like i i don't have anyone who could guarantor me i am a guarantor for other people why do you need a guarantor from me and we had to provide references from previous places we've rented we haven't we own like nine properties we we haven't done this everything is set up for people who who rent people who don't own homes people who can't afford it and it they just cause nothing for us none of the boxes fit and it was just infuriating having to go through this whole process and explain, look, look, we own a commercial building. I don't need somebody to guarantee my rent. There is nobody that could guarantee my rent. Why are you even asking these questions? And it absolutely bugged the hell out of me that it was done like this. But then it's estate agents as well, that frustrates me. Anyway, but that's just a personal rant. Um, oh, sorry. No, I, d- I think it's very valid because how do we encourage people to become more entrepreneurial yeah. and to do this, you know, be, be part of the freelance economy and other sectors and, and create their own businesses if we don't have systems that support that as mm. the norm? Why is, it sti- why, is, why is it still the exception, not the rule? Mm. Because ultimately, we're going to come unstuck with this one day. Yeah. Yeah, and and then every time there's a there's a change to a budget, it's the small business owner that gets affected the most. It it, it just seems to be we're an easy target. Small business owner and landlords, of course, because everybody hates landlords. Landlords are just rich, fat men with bowler hats who light their cigars with twenty pound notes, and everybody hates the landlords. So if you do oh, something yeah. to take money off the landlords, that's absolutely fine. The fact of the matter is that most landlords are just couples who own a house because they've moved in together and they've rented it out because they haven't got the equity in it to sell it so that's all they can do with it and now you're attacking them they are the landlords they're the ones being persecuted but anyway that's a rant about that that's one for another time um when when you obviously you worked in tech as you say you were a woman in tech which itself is quite unusual um there is there are i go to a lot of tech events um digital marketing events where there is there's more women now than there used to be when I first started going back in the early early two thousands, but there's still an underlying what's the phrase an underlying condescension towards women in it. There's there are issues there are th- things bubbling under the surface that I thought had gone a long time ago because I spent a couple of years without going and I went to one recently. And there was some sort of incident happened after I'd left in, 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 with with one of the ladies and one of the one of the older guys who, from a different generation in digital marketing, thought that uh, a young woman clearly wanted his advances because otherwise, why would she be there? Have you seen anything like that in in, in the industry that you've been in? Um. Do you mean so? Do you mean advances or, well, or just a, a, any sort of any sort of condescension or advance? Yeah, it, yeah, um, yeah. So probably the thing that I think is most prevalent is, um, and I do believe, 
I believe actually this is statistically proven. I'll find the stats on the stats on this one day. Hmm. Women suffer a lot of imposter syndrome. I know yeah. some men do as well, but when women suffer a lot of imposter syndrome, we we in inadvertently believe that we must be wrong you know more than us and I, I don't step forward and I don't have as much confidence in what I know we're a lot more guarded with that sort of thing so as a result you get in a situation like that and, and tech is quite alienating anyway the terminology is alienating so when you're when you're already suffering imposter syndrome so you've turned up you know a little bit about something I used to turn up at these meetups thinking well I'll learn and what I found is the jargon that was used and the bravado you know the developer that's the hero for example would be there you would immediately feel inferior and like you couldn't speak up you couldn't ask any questions you were the stupid one in the corner and you just wanted to leave as quickly as possible mm. and i've seen a lot of women do that they hover around the back they stay out the, out of the limelight they don't ask any questions because of the the jargon and the imposter syndrome that's overwhelming with them and the fact that you're not in a majority means you're not really you're not really sat with your buddies. You're not sat with other women that, you know, are on the same wavelength as you. So there's not everybody sat there going, I don't get that. I don't understand. What does that word mean? But yet, because it's so male dominated, the guys are. Guys are sat with your buddies. So if you say something, everybody might laugh at you or everybody might say it's okay. Or, you know, it might, it feels like it's your zone. But like I say, I believe that the jargon that's in tech alienates a lot of people from even starting to learn it. Even people who could be very good at it. And then the imposter syndrome that that comes up just has a, a massive detrimental effect to women's careers in the subject. Uh, it's interesting you say there are more and more women that are attending these events. What we noticed is since COVID, it died down quite a bit. Hmm. And that's because of the pressure for mums who are caregivers at home, basically. Nice. You know, we were the ones that took the brunt of childcare when COVID hit, homeschooling just by the nature of the fact that we're primary caregivers for the most part. And I'm not saying that's the same in every case. Some dads will have taken time off you know, or tried to. And that's the thing is during that time, a lot of parents had to make a decision. Whose career is going to get the hit? Dads or mums? Well, statistically, dad's going to earn more than mum anyway. Probably already does, to be fair. Mm. And mum, well, she's caregiver and she feels this obligation anyway towards the kids because that's what mums do so you you end up with this divisive situation happening in the house where mum's trying to juggle all the while thinking I'm gonna have to give up my career or I'm gonna have to take voluntary furlough or, or something like that and a lot of those people didn't go back or readjusted their lives or went back part-time if they could find part-time work or are now freelance and we supported dad's career which obviously then is self-professing with the gender pay gap which we no longer have to publish thanks to um the last <laughs> prime minister um but yeah and that that's another interesting conversation is you know there's definitely a confidence gap because i've as a leader interviewed men and women for my jobs hmm. and i found that guys will inevitably ask for 10k more than a female candidate really? and i would sit there with two candidates one asking for 40k one asking for 50 and i'd say what's the difference on the cv nothing but the difference is the woman doesn't want to have the conversation and think she's asking too much already. And the guy is perfectly okay with asking for more. So we have a lot. There is so much issue around this and so much stigma. I, I mean, I used to talk at the women tech events about asking for more money and being comfortable mm. with that conversation and all this kind of stuff. But it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily solve the problem when we have, like you say, the situations with the condescension and, and mm. the generational gap or people not recognising that women can actually do tech equally as good mm. as a male, a male colleague. And, and I've seen it. And probably better because women tend to have a higher attention to detail than men. I found, that to be, I found that to be the case. I found that to be true. Men, they, they think they know it, they get excited and they skip over stuff. So <laughs> we do, we do. We end up going back and going, ah, shit, I missed that. Whereas women tend not to not to do that. I mean, there's, there's loads of interesting things out there, isn't there, about design being for men and all that kind of stuff, because it was wrote, written by men. And I, mm. I actually read something quite controversial over on social media, so I don't know if this is entirely true. Oh, but go on, let's that, have it. <laughs> that the AI yeah. that Google and uh, Facebook and Instagram use will determine if something that a female person puts out there is a bit too racy and therefore they'll they'll restrict 
its viewing potential. So, for example, a little bit of female flesh. So, like, if you've got a couple of buttons open on your top, oh, no, it's mm. too racy, we can't show that. Because their AI is basically just tuned in to recognising when, you know, a female is there and actually it's suppressing female content. Don't know if it's true, but I, I wouldn't be surprised there, if there isn't something like that going on. There is definitely truth in that because Facebook will do that um it's got automated detect automated detection on images particularly used for facebook ads so if you're running a facebook ad quite often it's personal trainers so if you're a female personal trainer and you're putting an image of yourself on you're in workout gear it tends to be a sports bra and yeah. so it has a bit of flesh on show facebook will automatically detect it and go ooh that's a little bit racy can't be having that and then you then have to have the argument with facebook that actually that's absolutely fine there's it's far worse than that gets published so what are you doing and yeah so that is definitely definitely the case it, it's ridiculous it's always been ridiculous but yes that 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 happens um so when 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 you so you were then when you left the, the corporate world, you said you went in and you did a lot of speaking for other, is it, was it mostly women in tech or was it men and women in tech yeah. as well? Yeah, both. So this was actually even before I left because I was trying to advocate for more equality and diversity in in the sub, in hmm. in my in my arena. So I wanted to see more women around that table. So I started talking at the Women in Tech Global Conference. I did three years of talking of speaking there. Um, I spoke at various meetups male and female meetups about equality and diversity, the benefits of having of inviting women in, into your, mm. your team, and also speaking to women to try and build their confidence, help them understand see that, see that imposter syndrome is there, that there's something called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is perfectly normal. I don't, I don't know if you've come across that before, if you want me to. Please, please. well, yeah, elaborate. I, I, I've heard, but so, I cannot remember the specifics. Yeah, so Dunning-Kruger effect is basically, um, I like to think of it as the first stage is like being a teenager, you find out a little bit about something and you're the expert on it. You might have clients that do this. They know something about what you do, so they think they can tell you how to do your job. Got enough, knowledge, enough knowledge to be dangerous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We definitely have those in corporates as well that tell you how to do your project. Come on, it's easy. You just dump it all in a database, don't you? Yes, of course you do. And that person is dangerous but their confidence they're quite cocky mm. and they have they have the ability to steer a conversation steer a decision and they're in a really comfortable position and then what happens is most of us get into the imposter syndrome state the middle state which is where we have advanced knowledge a little bit more we've delved into the subject and we realize whoa there's a lot more questions here there's a lot more to know. So when we show up at these meetups or we show up in a boardroom meeting or, or trying to propose our solution we've got doubt because we know we don't know all the answers. So much doubt that we think the person next to us might might shoot us down. You know, mm. it's like when you put something out on social media, somebody else might know something that means that this is actually wrong. And we sit in that state for a long time. Then what happens is when you get deeper into a subject and you advance a lot more, you become the professor. And the professor knows there's still a lot of unanswered questions, but they also have a really good breadth and depth of knowledge. And they're actually confident and comfortable at asking the questions. Mm. Now, it takes a long time to get to that position where you're okay being the idiot in the room asking the questions, because you know that there's not one single person in that room who knows all the answers. But many of us sit in that middle zone where we know enough, but we're still worried about the stuff we don't know. Mm. And that's what holds us back. Whereas if we recognize that, move into the professor state, do enough work in an area, that confidence, competence loop starts to build, go deeper. We know there's more questions. We can throw that out there. We don't have to have the right or wrong answer. We, we're just able to contribute and mm. contribute comfortably. And that's what most of us are striving to be able to do. Mm. No, that's that's that's. In, I think I had the same conversation actually yesterday about your, what you're talking about. I, I was asking um, uh, the guy that does the marketing for Progressive. Actually, oh, yes. I was asking him very specific questions on how they do their segmentation on their emails. So I had the knowledge to ask the question, but the knowledge that I didn't know the answer to what he was going to do. Um, so yes, I, I see exactly where you're coming from there. I like that. I just hadn't identified it like that before. Uh, it's interesting what you say as well about them. People when they do talks not knowing that it's it, it, to do with the tech isn't it it's the jargon in tech it's it's very impenetrable and there are so many people who will use acronyms or initialisms that they're comfortable with and all their buddies are comfortable with but they don't realize that other people don't know the answers to these things and 
that imposter syndrome is what grabs you and says, I'm not going to put my hand up and say, what does that mean? Because I'm going to assume that every other person in this room knows what that means and I'm the only idiot. So I'm just going to keep down and pretend I know what they're talking about and not ask anything. But the reality is there's going to be a lot of people who don't know what they're talking about. The idiot is the person using the jargon because they don't understand who is in the room and how they should be explaining something. And it's a conversation I've had many times before. There was one networking meeting I was at a while back where a lady, and she knows who she is, she used an acronym talking about uh, CBT. CBT, which she meant as cognitive behavioural therapy. I was going to say, in what context? Exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. But she was talking to two guys, and the what, they were both nodding, smiling and nodding, and I was looking at them going, they've no idea what she's talking about, but she keeps saying CBT as though they do. And then I asked them, and the one guy thought it was the motorbike proficiency test. Oh, yeah. Yep. And the Good other guess. guy, the other guy misheard slightly and thought it was CBD and thought it was cannabis oil. Yeah. <laughs> but she would have carried on this conversation talking about CBT and they'd have had no idea what she was talking about. But we, we all do it. We all need to catch ourselves doing it. If you're throwing in an acronym or initialism which means something in your industry, doesn't mean anybody else you're talking to has got the faintest idea what you're talking about. And, and in tech, it's, it's rife. It's pre yeah, it's prevalent, yeah. and it and it alienates so much talent because I know people mm. who don't even they they basically like I did you know some of those web development sessions I just stopped going because I wasn't learning anything mm. and I felt like the idiot in the room and I and that's well, I made a career out of it I became a business analyst who then bridged a gap between business user who has no idea what any of this stuff means and then trying to decipher what does that developer mean when they say this so that you know we can bridge the gap and I, i'm even doing that now you know people are asking me to help with their sales funnels and they're dealing with a tech firm who can't bridge the gap to talk to a client even though they target coaches they actually don't know how to talk to a coach about changing their dns settings on their <laughs> website and things like that and that's that's where i come in and help so yeah, it's, it's, it's a massive issue. And it's probably yeah. an issue, you know, in healthcare and other sectors as well. As you say, a lot mm. of these acronyms, you know, they're multiplied. Education was really bad for acronyms as well. Mm. It is. Um, so so you, you now help people with their, the, 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 basically the lifestyle business is what you do, the lifestyle entrepreneur. Mm. What does lifestyle entrepreneur mean to you? And what does it mean to the people that you help? Absolutely. It's all about creating a business that works for the life you want to live. So mm. for me, it was very much about getting that freedom and that balance, freedom of time, freedom where I could earn more money than the glass ceiling I was bumping my head against. Um, and f freedom in terms of flexibility of location and choosing the hours of when mm. I want to work, dictating when I want to work. So for me, it's not about... I remember when I wanted to start a business, you know, there was people, um, my colleagues and around me who would sort of say, oh, you don't want to work more hours. You'll end up working 24 seven and you'll end up doing this and you'll end up doing that. And no, I didn't want to. I had to find a way that worked with my family. And that's key difference between a startup. I've not created a startup, a traditional sense. I've created something that means initially I was kind of self-employed. I was doing a lot of it. And then gradually I've started to create more passive income products and outsource and do more group led se sessions, which means it's a business that works around my family. And I've had to scale up and scale down as I've had kids. Mm -hmm. So my aspirations are slightly different to people who want to be a millionaire, a gazillionaire or whatever. I don't want to be on the FTSE 500. <laughs> it's about somebody who's trying to create that level of freedom. That's what mm -hmm. it's all about. And to transition, what, how it started is I was I was basically coaching people in their career, their leadership career, and they would come to me on these calls and they'd say, hey, so this has happened today and how do I deal with this situation? And I just get so frustrated with them. And then the next week, one of the ladies came to my session and she said, hey, Sue, so I know you've created this, um, you did these webinars for us and you then recorded it and have stuck it all on a digital program that we can rewatch and all the rest of it. And you've got this email list and you, you, you send us emails. I want to start training people how to be data analysts. How do I set all this up? Do I need a website? Do I need this? And I was like, light bulb moment. This is my calling. This is what I want to help people to do. Set up these businesses, set up all the infrastructure they need mm. and basically escape their own version of the rat race. And that was just then the next step was phasing out 
the leadership coaching and phasing in helping more people to build this structure. And I believe online businesses is a really great key for how people can do that. Hmm. So how how are people working with, or more, more importantly, how are you working with, with people at the moment? What are you doing to get clients and what you're doing for them? Yeah, so I do a lot of networking. We've now launched the Lifestyle Entrepreneur podcast, and that's seeing some leads come in nicely as well. Some great uh, guests so on that, I believe. Some great guests. Yeah, absolutely. You, you in the next month, in fact. <laughs> I say, yeah, top guests. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the yeah the Lifestyle Entrepreneur podcast is is the is a new way of getting leads into the business. Obviously, we talk a lot and share some advice on there. Uh, we have a lead magnet, so people sign up for a lead magnet, a PDF, a short mm-hmm. ebook that talks through how to create a business online. It talks mm-hmm. through mindset as well and all the different decisions you've got to make, different tech tools. There's so much stuff, so much value in that um, that you can share. But also, you know, networking. It's through my network, through speaking to other people, through joining other masterminds. Each and every person who's trying to create a business online needs to needs to get over the tech tools. At some point, every coach or every person that's serving one-to-one with a client, exchanging time for money, needs to invest in some sort of tool to allow them to scale, to do mm. more. The key thing is they start with an email list. They then say, actually, I want to take that email list and I want to sell them, say, a group program or something digitally. And I don't want to keep having the to and fro with the booking appointments for my calendar or paying me and having to chase them for invoices and things. So we get that set up. And then inevitably, it's how can I then package what I know and deliver it on a one to many scale through a digital course? Mm -hmm. And it's those sorts of systems that we help to set up. And initially, I would do absolutely everything. And now I like you work with freelancers to to bring all that together so that I can leverage my time a bit more and I can have more time with the family. Mm. Most of my time now is probably spent content marketing and, and developing content for the podcast and various other th- channels. No, that, 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 that's great because, I mean, as you say, there are there are so many people out there that are currently exchanging time for money that are working on a one-to-one basis. And there's a lot of coaches doing this. So you you can only have so many hours in the day. And if you go beyond that, you're going to obviously, as you know, you're going to risk burnout. If you don't take any time off, it's going to get on top of you. If you never take a holiday, it's going to get too much. You're going to spend no time with your family. You're going to have no lifestyle balance whatsoever. And when you do get ill, as it will happen, then you stop earning. Exactly. And, And the only way to get over that is to scale it so that you are doing the one-to-many, so that you are doing the passive income, so that you are, as the old cliched adage goes, earning money while you sleep. Exactly, exactly. And it sounds it sounds idyllic, doesn't it? And the reality is a lot of people don't, don't realise it takes a lot of upfront work. You can't simply go from launch straight to a digital course that's absolutely perfect you know when i did it i had to deliver live training sessions on facebook to get a hand a feel for hey does people do people like my leadership style coaching what sort of topics resonate with them what questions are they asking had to do a lot of feeling around and then we know when my when people came to me and said hey sue how did you set up an email list and how did you set up your lead magnet where did you put that how did you do the other then it's using those bits of information to then build out your program or build out your group coaching session or whatever you're going to do. So you you have to go on a journey. You have to do a lot of learning, um, but it's really valuable. And really step one, when if you're a one-to-one coach or if you deliver your services one-to-one, step one is figuring out how can you automate some of that, whether it's the little administration in between the, you know, like requesting payment for invoices, like it's, you know, getting people to book their own appointments, their own coaching sessions, mm. instead of the back and forth and the reschedule. And I'm sorry, yeah. I've got to pick up the kids, or I'm sorry, I've got to do this at this time. Like, it's little things like that. I helped a photographer to do that once in her business. She had this system where you book, you basically sent a contact form in to say, hey, I'd like to talk to you about your packages. I was like, and then we had this email chain over five days to arrange booking <laughs> my brand shoot. And I just thought, this is crazy. Yeah. I said to her, Charlotte, let's let's just have a book now, a consultation. You tell me when you're available, and people will just pick it and reschedule it to suit. Fifteen minutes. Talk through talk through your pricing. Right, here's the link. If you want to book, go for your life. Mm. And it was a game changer because all of a sudden she was providing a better customer experience, and she was getting she was getting time back, time to focus on editing the photos and doing the amazing photo shoots that she does so well. 
And now it's looking at, well, how can we leverage this even more to help families create better pictures or better personal branding shoots, packages, all that kind of good stuff. So there's yeah, lots of opportunity. It, it's coming back to Emma Raducanu again there. I mean, that she plays tennis. This is email tennis. If you're bouncing emails back and forth between people, it's taking time. It's taking time. I used to do that and because I thought that was the best way to do it. You know, I'd email them some dates. They come back. Oh, I can't do those. How about these? I have to check my calendar. Oh no, we can't do those. Go back again. But now use a Calendly booking system. Yeah. Pick the time so that works for you. Yeah, it's easy, and it just takes out hours and hours of your week going back and forth. And there's so many tips like that that, that obviously you you help people with that just saves them the time that you, you uh, again, it, it's a cliched phrase. You don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know how to do these things, then you need someone to help you. And, yeah, and, and that, that's what you, what you do. I go just on. To pick up on that. You yeah. don't know what you don't know. I, you know, this is a really good point. So this morning I've been recording content mm-hmm. and you know, as a content creator, one of the things you're constantly having to do is go, what do I know that other people don't know? Mm-hmm. And here's what we do. You get into a state when you know something, you immediately assume, like we talked about the acronyms and the tech terms, you immediately assume everybody knows it. And this is the thing, most people I work with, when we start thinking about a digital course and what they could create and how they could serve people, they have no idea what knowledge and skills or experience they've had that other people have no idea how to do. Mm. And it can be something like getting your toddler to sleep. I can't do that. Somebody can show me how to do that. That's a game changer. All sorts of things. And, and you know, all you have to do is have a good Google all over Udemy or something like that. And you'll realize how obscure and how small these things are. I remember helping a, an old colleague to get his Excel course going. And he was like, I'm not sure if, if this is helpful to anybody. I was like, of course it's helpful. There are people who do not know how to use Excel. Mm-hmm. And yet we take it for granted that we know it. So going back to the, you don't know what you don't know. No, you don't. But also, don't take it for granted that other people don't know what you know and that you can sell that. No, 100%, 100%. I see that all the time. Because I'm in B&I, which is a networking meeting, um, and there's, there's people in there. You just have a, a one-to-one with the photographer or with the electrician or with the plumber, and the stuff they come out with and you think, I had no idea about any of this and they're just talking about it as though it's so blasé everybody knows this don't they no you do because you've been doing it for like 30 years i haven't got a bloody clue i don't even know how to turn the water off in my house if i did we might not have a flooded house right now um that, that's not true but anyway but yeah these they, they say these things and yeah they just assume everybody knows it but they don't if you've been in a career or an industry for 10 15 20 plus years you know so much that, that ev- anyone who's not in your industry hasn't got a clue about. Hasn't got a clue. Your knowledge is so valuable. Your experience is so valuable. And that, that's where you come in. Help them get that out. Help them get it out there so they can turn it into a passive income. And we, and we can all live on the beach. <laughs> well, now you mention a beach. Yes. You're, you're, you're so- moving, I believe, aren't you? Not quite, not quite to a beach house a beach, yet. But it's but pretty idyllic, though, isn't it? It's it's it's, it's on the cards, and and I, I guess I want to share this. So we're at the start of our journey of emigrating to France. So we're in visa application hell at the moment, <laughs> and um, and Mad. I say that you know, sorry for the Brexiteers there, but um, post Brexit, it's very difficult to move to Europe. But uh. one of the things that I wanted to share with your audience is. I'm, I'm, I'm experimenting with this, okay, ultimate freedom is being able to live and work wherever with my family. And right now, we are selling our recent renovated home so that we can move to France and we're going through the visa application process so that we can have that, that freedom of travel with my family and with the business. And I think since the pandemic, working remotely with freelancers, with other people who support your business, online business all gives you that opportunity mm-hmm. so if anybody's interested in, em- in emigrating if you follow the lifestyle entrepreneur podcast i am going to share the like the, the worst bits of this journey and the best bits and all my tips and everything we've gone through on there if you're really interested in it but i yeah it's it's kind of the dream isn't it the beach lifestyle i don't actually have a dream to sit on a beach with a laptop i'd rather sit on the beach with my kids 
and <laughs> have the laptop back at the house and just, you know, be, have my time in the morning before the sun comes up with the laptop and then mm. my afternoons taking them from school down to the beach and having a paddle. No, I'd, I'd agree with that. It, it is actually impractical to sit on the beach with a laptop because you, you can't see the screen from the glare. It's heavy, it's hot, it's going to leave marks on your legs. Mm. It, 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 oh, it's just, and then your back's hurting because you're leaning forward. Yeah, laptop, beach working, it's just for the photographs. It's just for the Insta. People do yeah. that. I did that poolside in uh, Australia once with a shot of the coffee in the ocean. And I thought, yeah, this, this, this is nice, but I'll put it away now. Because I, I, I just don't want to. I just don't want to do it. Um, so we're almost almost out of time now. We're almost out of time. If if somebody wanted to to work with you or find out more about you or even follow your journey to France, and I imagine uh, it's going to be a tricky one because mm. the, the French don't move particularly quickly. No, they don't no. move particularly. They move in their own speed, their own time. What, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you and and follow you? Absolutely. So uh, Lifestyle Entrepreneur Podcast is the best way to find out about journeys. There's loads of, you know, show note links on, under that. I'll also share with you the freebie that I've got for your listeners. So if you want to figure out how to start a lifestyle business, I've got nine ways. It's like the the, the biggest things that I've learned in the last few years to get you going, to, to give you a head start. You can download that and I'll put that link in the show notes. My website is sueparker.io um, and you'll find that link on there. But that's, it's gone ever so quickly. Thank it, you, Darren. It it's has. been a really interesting conversation with you. It has. Oh, thank you very much. Um, not, not everybody says that. I, I can be quite boring. Um, I, I will put all of the links uh, for your, your, your stuff, your, your website, social media and stuff. I will put those in the in the descriptions uh, below the, the podcast on the various platforms that we were on, including YouTube. So if anybody wants to, to get in touch, then they're going to be just, just look down right below um thank you very much for for being on my podcast i absolutely appreciate it i loved it i loved your your open honesty with all of the stories as well not everybody likes to be as honest but you open book open book and good luck with france i will be following uh, very very keen to find out how that goes because we're, we're looking to be buying a, a villa in spain in a couple of years so i know different country similar laid-back approach to doing everything so i'll be interested to see how you get on <laughs> definitely thank you so much darren it's been a pleasure thank, thank you. you everyone thank you <laughs>